You're listening to the Televisionary Christmas Spectacular. In this episode, Cody and I talk about some classic TV specials just in time for the holiday season, with a few detours along the way. Like, you know, you have a bomb, like a bomb that detonates, right, and blows people up, and put it in a bowl, put it in a salad bowl, and you've got a bomb in a bowl. Hi! Hello! How are you? I am just dandy. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's the holiday season. Why wouldn't I be dandy? It's the holiday season. <laughs> okay, you kind of ruined something that I was going to do by oh, singing no. that song. <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I mean, not completely. But okay. I was just going to tell our viewer, or not our viewers, I do that all the time. It's okay. I forgive myself. Anyway, I was going to tell our listeners that you were going to treat them to an original holiday song, which you did not know I was going to tell them. An original song? Which you kind of already did. It was a very brief song. But if you have another in you, then go for it. <laughs> well, that is a real song. I might not have sang sung it correctly sang sung it right but oh okay you know it's the holiday season right and we can't do more than four seconds or we'll get sued so i forgot that that song existed so i'm glad that you reminded me that it is a real song wow sorry i was giving you all this credit as like wow you came up with that little ditty right off the top of your head i should have just taken it i guess yeah. uh-huh. i don't know if i have it in me to give you anything else right now I'm, i want to do like a televisionary christmas but like <laughs> i can't think of any other lyrics so i mean i feel like that was pretty good for it just was... coming up with it right now i liked it I know we usually don't talk a lot before our main episodes, but I did just want to let everyone know that I woke up this morning and I can't bend my head to the right very much. Um, why? (laughs) I don't know. It happens to me, like, I would say maybe once every two years. I just, like, must sleep weird and, like, it gets really stiff. I mean, I can move it, but it just hurts really bad. And this is just one in a string of physical mishaps I've had in the past two weeks. Oh no. You know, it's the holiday season. We're going to persevere. Maybe Santa will bring you some uh, Bengay, I don't know, to put on your (laughs) neck. I don't know. Don't know exactly what would help, but I'm sure his elves could whip up something for you. (laughs) They can make anything. They sure can. If anyone listening is confused... Which you might be. (laughs) This is the Televisionary Christmas Special. Woo! Yay! Our first... Well, I don't know. I don't want to say first annual because I don't know if we'll do another one. Uh, But anyway, our first ever. And we're very excited about it because we both love the holidays. We do. I, I feel like we haven't really talked about about whether we actually love Christmas specials, but I love the Christmas specials a lot. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be focusing the conversation on today. Do you have, like, a weird attachment to any of the Christmas specials of yesteryear? So I am very, like, love it or hate it with these Christmas specials. Like, mm. I love Rudolph. I love Frosty. I okay. love Frosty Returns. 
I don't know why, <laughs> okay. but I, I'm like, I actually might like it more than the original. Oh, wow. <laughs> I always t- tried to convince myself that I liked A Year Without a Santa Claus. Like, I, I don't know why, but I wanted that to be my favorite, but it really wasn't. But like, I hate A Christmas Story. I hate The Grinch. I I guess I'm ambivalent on like some of the other ones, but they elicit strong reactions in me. But I did watch like Rudolph and Frosty. I definitely watched every single year, like growing up with my parents and stuff. Mm-hmm. As did I. I didn't know that you loved the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack that much until I read that in uh, our notes. Uh-huh. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, yeah. I... I would say, without a doubt, Charlie Brown Christmas is my favorite. I feel like that in particular is one that, like, you either love because you just have this attachment to it from childhood, or, like, you saw it for the first time as an adult, and you're like, what is this, and why does anyone like it? (laughs) Like, it's kind of boring (laughs) and really poorly made. But we'll get into why that is in a little bit here. But, like, uh... Yeah, I generally have the Charlie Brown Christmas vinyl record playing in my home nonstop from, like, the day after Thanksgiving until the week after Christmas. That's how Zach's mom is. Except I think she listens to it, like, all year round, pretty much. I mean, uh, yeah. I Like, <laughs> I have all of the songs on my iPod that I take out with me whenever I go for a walk. Yeah, I still listen to my iPod. When I go walking, okay? And those songs come on, and I listen to them year-round. Well, do you want to just jump right into our first Christmas special? Let's do it. Would you like me to kick it off, or do you want to? No, I want to kick it off. Okay, then go for it. Maybe... To just preface if a little bit, we are going to be covering a bunch of different Christmas specials in this episode. So we're going to give you some fun facts and background on them and a little bit of discussion like we usually do. And I think that you will probably learn something that you didn't know about these things that you've probably seen a hundred times. Maybe not a hundred times, but you've seen over and over and over again. The first one that we're going to be talking about is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That was good enough. Still, the beginning was not as strong as I wanted it to be, but... It was actually pretty beautiful. Oh, thanks. So, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer first aired on Sunday, December 6th, 1964 on NBC as part of a show called the General Electric Fantasy Hour. And the special was based on a song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, originally released by Johnny Marks. And that song was based on a poem of the same name that was written in the 30s by someone named Robert L. May. And the song eventually became more popular by artist Gene Autry, whose 1949 version hit number one on what was essentially the 40s version of the Billboard Hot 100. So that was the week of Christmas 1949, and that is the version of the song that I think was more popular than the original. The special debuted on NBC in 1964 and has been telecast every single year since, making it the longest continuously running Christmas television special. Uh, How about that? I tried so hard to find statistics on the viewership per year of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because I was just sort of curious like how many millions of people watched it every single year it aired and I am sure that stat is out there but I tried Google, I tried Bing, I couldn't find any 
actual stats on the viewership. So the only thing I saw was that originally it was viewed by over half of all American television sets owned at the time, which would have been about 26 million people that it would have reached or television sets it would have aired on. That was on the Google page and then I tried to click the link and the website was broken. So that could be completely false, but that was (laughs) the only thing I could find. And then today it still gets like 7 million, 6 million views every year. So it still is drawing in like a fairly large number of people considering that not that many people sit down and watch traditional TV anymore. I just thought that was cool. Yeah, for sure. Since 1972, the special has aired on CBS, so it's been on network television that entire time. And obviously, in the early years, you didn't really have a choice. But the fact that the networks still see such value in having those specials, I think, speaks to their popularity. You know, they're still something that audiences will turn their actual TVs on at a certain time and watch because they know that they're you know, going to be on at that time. And there's, there's not a lot of programming of any kind out there like that these days. No, not at all. Rudolph was one of the first productions by Rankin Bass Animated Entertainment, which at the time was called Videocraft International. Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass created the company in 1960 and was the first time really for the in the animated industry that a lot of the actual animation of the project was outsourced to Japan. So I I think Japan is like kind of known for doing a lot of animation work over the years but this was kind of the first time that the production company was creating something and then not really doing the actual animation themselves so this is what they started doing for all of their stop motion projects which are really what made them the most famous they went on to create other holiday specials like the little drummer boy santa claus is coming to town jack frost and a couple of others that we will get to later in this episode And all of those Rankin-Bass specials have such a distinctive look to them. Like, Mm -hmm. you can just kind of tell when you watch them, but it's really hard to, for whatever reason, to recreate, you know, that special look to them that they have. But I think that's just neat that, like, they're so known for doing only the Christmas specials and kind of only identified with that. I don't know. There's just something special about special about the specials. I think it's so interesting that they outsourced all of the animation to Japan because that really, to this day, I mean, it's not necessarily Japan anymore, but that's still such a common practice. And it seems like this is kind of the first time it started to get big was with Rankin Bass. And then I know um, Hanna-Barbera, the animation company that did like pretty much every major cartoon of the era and Mm -hmm. even more to this day like they outsourced a lot of their animation in japan and now like walt disney i think outsources to india and taiwan does some animation the philippines korea a lot of american animated anything is actually produced overseas just because it's so much cheaper i read somewhere that it's like 25 dollars an hour to pay an indian animator it's 125 dollars an hour if you would do that same work domestically wow so i mean there's a little bit of a problematic side to that for both the people in india and the people here who are not getting hired but yeah it definitely started that trend and that trend continues to this day. So Burl Ives played the narrator of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. His character was named Sam the Snowman. And uh, he was, you know, 
definitely the biggest name involved with the project at the time. I don't really know anything about him other than the fact that he was in Rudolph, <laughs> so like that's what I've always identified him from. But other than Burl Ives, all of the characters were actually portrayed by Canadian actors who were recorded at RCA Studios in Toronto. And Rankin and Bass chose the Canadian voice actors for two reasons. One of them being that the last radio dramas had ended production in the U.S. a few years before the production of Rudolph started, but a lot of those radio dramas were still being produced in Canada, so there was a pretty big talent pool that the producers could choose from to cast a special like this. And the second reason was that Rankin and Bass had kind of gotten into some financial doldrums, <laughs> maybe you would say, <laughs> as they were making a film called The Tales of the Wizard of Oz a few years before that. It was a series, not a film, sorry. And they'd only been able to complete that because labor costs were lower in Canada. So they knew that, you know, it could be a little bit cheaper if they went to Canada. So it helped that there was also a larger talent pool there. It also helped them in the long run because Burl Ives was the only member of the cast to receive residuals from the film's run. And everyone else just got paid $1,000 for the three years following the film's release, and that was it. So since it originally aired, Rudolph has gone on to make over $100 million, and most of the people involved in making the project saw maximum $3,000 of that money, which is pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the voice actor who played Rudolph was named Billy Mae Richards, and that's B-I-L-L-I-E, because she was a woman. But... She was credited as Billy Richards, B-I-L-L-Y, because Rankin and Bass did not want to disclose that a woman had played the part of Rudolph. And in the years afterward, Billy Mae Richards was asked if she had, you know, any resentment toward Rankin and Bass for the pay situation, that, you know, she probably should have capitalized a lot more on her legendary voice role. But she said uh, she didn't really, like, the money would have been nice, but it was also, she didn't have any hard feelings or anything because it was just great to be a part of something that meant so much to so many people you know, that had left such a lasting impact on people and that allowed families the opportunity to get together and share love of, you know, this program and everything. So I think that's a good attitude for her to have. Definitely. And I respect her for that. But she's also probably saying, man, I could have bought myself a boat. I know, right? If they had actually paid me right. <laughs> <laughs> her family is probably like, okay, well, that's good, mom. But, like, we right. could have been set for life. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I didn't know this, but Rudolph had a sequel. In, it was released in 1976 called Rudolph's Shiny New Year, which I have never seen. And there is also a feature-length special with Rudolph and another Christmas favorite that was released in 1979 that we will let you know about later. So you have to keep listening. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> I also have never seen Rudolph's Shiny New Year, but I think they still do play it most years on CBS. Oh, really? I think they might. I could be wrong about that. But I, f I feel like I have seen ads for it, at least. And granted, it's been a couple of years since I, like, watched enough ads on TV to really recognize whether it was definitely airing or not. But Interesting. I feel yeah. like deep within my mind, I can kind of picture what it looks like. But I know that I have never seen it. I feel certain of that. Yeah. Would you say that Rudolph is 
you said that Frosty Returns is your favorite, right? Probably, yeah. Is, like, Rudolph close to Frosty? Yeah, I think, like, Rudolph and Frosty are the closest in my mind. Like, those are the Christmas specials and the ones that I think are most nostalgic for me. And also just, like, Rudolph's story is so good, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's got a lot of nice messages on there like it's all about bullying a little bit <laughs> a little bit about bullying maybe not all about bullying and then i love the abominable snowman mm-hmm. right isn't that abominable snowman am i saying that right yes abominable yes. Uh, think of it like this sorry to cut you off but like you know you have a bomb like a bomb that detonates right and blows people up and put it in a bowl put it in a salad bowl and you've got abominable I was more confused about whether it was the abominable snowman because it's not really a snowman at all. Right. It's like a yeti. <laughs> it is a yeti. <laughs> but yeah, I just think the story of Rudolph is is really strong and that one like that one and Frosty just have the most kind of weight in my mind. I love Rudolph too because there is just this message of people who are outcasts in society still having value and still being capable of doing incredible things. Like, you could be ostracized and you could be looked over and you could be made fun of, but you might be the one person in the world who can do the thing that is required for whatever situation. I don't know. There's something so funny to me about the fact that you find that in a children's Christmas special, <laughs> especially from the 60s where there was not yeah. like, not a big push to like really help children discover their individual self-worth, you know? But I, I just think that it holds up so well because it is something that so many people can identify with, not even about the holiday aspect, but just that central message of not thinking of yourself as being worthless or as being less than because you are different from everyone else. But taking, you know, instead taking that thing that is different about you, that makes you special, it makes you unique, and figuring out what you can do with that thing to change the world and to make a difference and to show the world that you have a purpose and something to offer. And for Herbie, that's dentistry. Right, yes. <laughs> I love the character of Hermie. I think he's just like, you know, in the same regard that Rudolph has the things that make him quirky and different. Hermie has that, but it's so much more internal. You know, it's so much more of like, he wants to be a dentist so badly and he was, you know, kind of forced into this toy making that he never wanted to do. And it's <laughs> like, I don't know, th that's another thing that so many people identify with, but. Well, it's true. And there's, there's a lot written out there about a lot of these characters from these Christmas specials and how they have really been like beacons of hope and light for people who are different. I think that's kind of a common theme throughout like a lot of these specials that we're going to talk about. So I think you're definitely on to something. And the fact that they air every year, it's not the same kind of impact as like a normal show that we would talk about on this podcast, but their sort of lasting presence in like the media landscape has probably influenced people more than they would realize. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So do you want to talk about your favorite Christmas special, as you've already told us? <laughs> yes. Let's segue on to the best of the best, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm a huge Rudolph fan, too, but Charlie Brown Christmas is just 
it has such a special place in my heart for some reason. I don't know why I love it so much, but yeah, I could watch it over and over and over again, I feel, and not get tired of it. A Charlie Brown Christmas debuted on CBS on December 9th, 1965, and aired there every year through the year 2000. Starting in 2001, it then moved to ABC, and in 2020, Apple TV bought the rights to all Peanuts-related media, and Apple TV Plus is now their exclusive home, which brings an end to the annual broadcast television airing, something that I mentioned with Rudolph, that it's still airing on broadcast TV. But under the terms of the agreement, Apple TV Plus must make a Charlie Brown Christmas and two other holiday specials, It's the Great Pumpkin's Charlie Brown and a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, available for free on their platform during a three-day window each year. There was a lot of criticism over Apple's decision to move the specials off of broadcast TV or free television. So after all of that criticism, they actually announced a deal with PBS to resume that annual tradition. So for the foreseeable future, while Apple has those rights, the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the other holiday specials will be airing on PBS. This whole like saga is very interesting to me because I think it shows just how much people love these specials, like just what reverence there is for them airing on an actual television set. It wasn't enough for Apple TV to just have it, you know, free for three days or whatever. Like people people must have really not liked that. <laughs> and I can understand because they are such like cultural mainstays. Yeah, I, I feel like they just are such institutions around the holidays that it seemed like not in the holiday spirit to force people to go to yeah. your, you know, to your nascent streaming service. Nascent. It's nascent, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I've started incorporating that word into my vocabulary a little bit more, but I never really hear people pronounce it. So I think it's supposed to be nascent. Anyway, I definitely agree that whenever these specials are on broadcast TV, that is when I sit down and watch them. If they were only available on streaming, I feel like I would be, I wouldn't say less likely to watch them, but there is something exciting to me about saying, oh, Charlie Brown Christmas is on this Wednesday at eight o'clock. And so I have to mark it on my calendar to make sure I don't miss it. And if it was on streaming, I would just be like, yeah, I can watch that later and then might never get around to it. Uh, One thing I I thought was interesting about a Charlie Brown Christmas or actually a lot of these specials is that a Charlie Brown Christmas was sponsored by the Coca-Cola company and I just found that interesting that Rudolph was on General Electric Hour or whatever and then this is the Coca-Cola company and I think there's another one that's also sponsored in some way I could be wrong about that but it just reminds me of how much TV has changed in the way that it does advertising. I think mm-hmm. we talked in our I Love Lucy about how it was William Morris kind of funding the show in a Philip w- Morris. Philip Morris was funding the show in a way, so... William Morris is a talent agency. Okay. (laughs) Philip Morris is a cigarette company. Very different. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I I just... I don't know. I found that kind of interesting. You just don't see that as much anymore, with the exception of, like, the Super Bowl halftime show is always, like, the Tostitos Super Bowl (laughs) halftime show or whatever, you know? I think it's so interesting that these specials have so completely moved away from their original intended purpose, which Charlie Brown Christmas was commissioned by Coca-Cola. Like, they're the ones who wanted to do it. (laughs) And, (laughs) like, now there's no association whatsoever with Coca-Cola for that special, you know? 
it's just interesting to me that you can have that original impetus for creating these things in the first place. It wasn't just because someone was like, hey, you know, we should make a television special about the Peanuts characters. It was, we're Coca-Cola and we want to sell more Coca-Cola. So, <laughs> oh, those Peanuts characters are popular. So let's create this I and mean, have someone create this special for us so that we can sell our ads on it. And for as much of a tradition as these things have become, the original branding associated with them did not remain a part of those traditions. So, yeah. Yeah. The special was actually written over a period of just a couple of weeks and produced on a pretty small budget in about six months. And it was actually one of the very few animated programs of the time to hire child actors. Pretty much all voice work for, like, child characters in animation was done by adults at the time. But the producers felt that it was important to actually have real children voicing those roles. And... If I can interject, I would say you can definitely tell that these are real <laughs> children <laughs> voicing some of these characters. I I just love some of the rhythms of the actors because they're so bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> one of the things that I love watching it is there's especially one line where Sally, Charlie Brown's younger sister, says, All I want is what I ha- have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Oh my she says God. it just like that, I swear. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, like, first of all, could you not, like, was that the best take that you got out of her? Like, could you not find a better take where she actually didn't stop halfway through her hat <laughs> and have to restart and then just, like, blurt out the rest of the line? But then also, like, was that the best girl you could find? Like, could you not yeah. find a better child actor to voice that role? I don't know. Not meaning to poop all over that actress. You know, that She's voice probably actor, dead now. She is probably dead. Well, I mean, if she was a child 50-some years ago, she might not be dead. She's probably in her 60s. <laughs> Moving right along. A Charlie Brown Christmas was honored with an Emmy Award in 1966 for Outstanding Children's Program and has gone on to win a Peabody Award, which is pretty cool. It was also performed live. There have been several theatrical versions of A Charlie Brown Christmas produced and staged in America. So we already talked about the Coca-Cola sponsorship a little bit more, but I feel like this is kind of an interesting story that no one really knows about the special. The Peanuts comic strip was hugely popular in the mid-60s, and in April of 1965, a man named John Allen from the ad agency McCann Erickson called Lee Mendelson, who was a TV producer, who had been planning a documentary about the comics, and he asked him about the feasibility of doing an animated special featuring the Peanuts characters. An animated special had not been done with those characters before, and Coca-Cola was asking John Allen for a holiday special that they could sponsor. And John Allen had the idea that a lot of people would probably like to see an actual animation of the Peanuts strips. So Lee Mendelson agreed and committed to producing an outline of the special for Coke five days after this initial call. So he had, you know, a couple of days to get together with the creator of Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and they came up with an outline in less than a day. And it did not change at all from their initial pitch through production to air, which I think is just crazy. Yes. That, like something that has lasted so long that so many people have loved was conceived of in less than a day. I don't know. That's just mind boggling to me. But anyway, as we said earlier, the production lasted for about six months, pretty small budget, and it was actually completed just 10 days shy of its national broadcast premiere. And 
Everyone who was involved with it thought it would be a disaster. The director of the special, Bill Melendez, saw the first completed animation just a couple of days before the premiere, and he turned to everyone else, the crew of animators and everyone watching, and he said, my golly, we've killed it. He was embarrassed, but one of the other animators, one of the other people watching, Ed Levitt, had a, a more positive view of it. He said, it was the best special he'll ever make, and this show is going to run for a hundred years. So at least someone saw the potential and turned out being right. It finished at number two in the ratings on the night that it aired behind Bonanza. And I mean, when you think about it, it's one of the only Christmas specials that we're talking about out of the how many that have been made over the years like it's one of the few that's lasted and whether it's actually any good or not or <laughs> whether people just wanted to tune in to see the peanuts and kept tuning in year after year because of the special nostalgic value that it had for them it doesn't really matter because it has made a lasting impact on people it's also one of the only christmas specials that we're talking about the only christmas special that we're talking about that even broaches the subject of the true meaning of christmas I think Charles Schultz was a religious man, and it was important for him that the special reflect Christian values in some way. And there is a scene within the special of Linus reading the Christmas story from the Bible. And I'm curious to get your take on this, because on one hand, I feel like it is surprising that there aren't more Christmas specials from this time or today that actually hit on the real meaning of Christmas. But on the other side of things, you know, the 60s was a time of a lot of change. Things were becoming much more commercial and have become more commercialized even to this day. So maybe it isn't all that surprising that there aren't more references to the true meaning of Christmas. And it's not like these specials don't have their own morality, but this is really the only one that actually comes from like a really strong Christian kind of place with its message. So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, like I just kind of, I don't know why I had this idea in my head, but I figured that like there were more specials, Christmas specials around that time that did have more of that religious component to them because it seems like even in the 60s, a time of change, as you said, America was so much more religious. But I actually found a statistic that in the 60s, fewer than 9% of television Christmas episodes contained any substantive reference to religion. So, you know, it wasn't the norm for those specials to talk about the actual story of the birth of Jesus by any means. And Charles Schultz was actually quoted as saying, if we don't do it, who will? In reference to someone who questioned the need to have Linus read the Christmas story. I do feel like in general, though, broadcast television has always been afraid of offending people. And I think they probably found it a little bit safer to go with the Christmas traditions that were more secularly based because they weren't going to be alienating people. Now, there's also a chance that they could be alienating the people who do care about those right. religious roots by not talking about them. But I, I feel like we as a culture are more used to not seeing those representations and just being used to it than to seeing those representations and getting mad about them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I had like a different 
mindset going into thinking about this. Like, I just had assumed that, I don't know, that religion had started, like, well, attending actual, like, religious services. I assumed Christians had stopped going to church as much earlier than they actually did. Like, I assumed that things probably peaked in, like, the 50s and had already started to decline in the 60s. I don't know why I assumed that. Probably because I feel like watching Mad Men like they just go to church on like the holidays or whatever and like I had assumed maybe that that had started then but that's really not true like the religious dedication of people like actually going to church rose in the 50s and peaked in the 60s and then started a slow decline and then a much more rapid decline in like the 80s and 90s and through today so like that's not true at all and that that is not the reason why these specials are not more Christian because you would think that they would be more influenced by Christianity since there were still so many people who were religious and practicing religion. But I don't know. I mean, maybe part of the lasting impact of some of these specials is that they are from a more secular place as we've gotten less religious as a society, having more specials, not a Charlie Brown Christmas, but all the other ones, having those more neutral takes on the holiday. Maybe that's part of the reason why they have maintained their popularity. I don't know. I tried to go down a theory with this one and it just ended up not being true. So So I love the soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas so much. And I would argue that the soundtrack has maybe had even more of an impact than the special itself. That might be an unpopular opinion, but the soundtrack has sold 4 million copies, which is a huge number for a holiday album. And before this special aired, jazz really was not considered Christmas music. Like, it was mainly just the old Christmas hymns and secular carols that were considered to be Christmas music. And nowadays, most successful holiday albums are heavily jazz-based. And a lot of the songs on the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack have become holiday standards. Even Linus and Lucy, which is not really a Christmas song at all, it was (laughs) written by Vince Guaraldi as the theme for Ben Mendelsohn's documentary that I talked about earlier. And it doesn't have any lyrics. So, like, it really is not, it was never intended to be a Christmas song. It just has become associated with Christmas because of this special. Is that the da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Yep. Mm-hmm. A Charlie Brown Christmas, well, the soundtrack, anyway, was voted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, actually, in 2007. And it was added to the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry list of culturally, historically, or aesthetically important American sound recordings in 2012. I don't know if A Charlie Brown Christmas has been like elected to a television academy hall of fame if that even exists i don't know um (laughs) but anyway i mean we said earlier it got an emmy and the peabody award so it's obviously been recognized in its own right but the soundtrack has gotten its own lauds (laughs) right yes Uh, (laughs) one final kind of fact about this special that i found super interesting is that it pretty much killed the popularity of the aluminum Christmas tree, which you have probably never heard of or, like, didn't even know existed because it's not a thing anymore in our world. And that's partially because of A Charlie Brown Christmas. They sort of portrayed it fairly negatively and I think made fun of it in the special a little bit. So basically from 1958 to 1965, it was a 
very popular thing, the aluminum Christmas tree. But by 1967, which was just two years after the special originally aired, they were not even being manufactured anymore, at least not regularly. (laughs) I just wanted to say, too, like there are so many iconic visuals from Charlie Brown Christmas, like the Charlie Brown tree, the, the very skinny looking, you know, short tree with like two branches and all of its needles falling off that's bowed over all the terrible dancing that the kids do to Linus and Lucy, the song where Schroeder is playing the piano and they're all standing there doing their uh, hopping back and forth or walking like Frankenstein in place. It's so hard to describe that (laughs) without actually seeing it, but you know what I mean if you've seen the special. (laughs) Like, you can imitate that dancing yourself. I don't know. It's just, for something that is as low quality as it obviously was, it just somehow feels timeless. It's something that I will watch forever and ever until I die, and I just love it. We are going to talk about my least favorite Christmas special of all time, which is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I am not a Seuss head. I don't like Dr. Seuss at all. I actually hate Dr. Seuss. (laughs) But this special, in some ways, I think has had one of the bigger impacts on Christmas time and like even our language. Mm -hmm. It was based on the 1957 book of the same name by Dr. Seuss and was originally telecast in the United States on CBS in 1966. It aired on broadcast TV every year until 1987, and then it sort of started hopping around to various cable channels like TNT, TBS, Cartoon Network, until it returned to broadcast TV in 2001, and that was on the WB. The WB obviously doesn't exist anymore, so when it went away in 2006, the Grinch moved to ABC, who ran it until 2015, and now it airs on NBC. Mm -hmm. One thing that is kind of interesting to me about the way this special kind of adapted the book is that in the actual Grinch printed book, the Grinch is white, but we all know that he is green, and they made him green because they thought it would pop better on TV, and that has kind of been his like hallmark, I would say since that point, like we know the Grinch is green and I actually looked it up. They print the original version of the book, but they do print a colorized version of the book as well. So I don't know of any other examples of a movie or TV special or TV series influencing the actual work that it's based on in that way to like physically change the way a book looks or the story in a book. That's something I thought was (laughs) cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. They started like changing the actual book to represent that. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a more justifiable version of like you know when they make a movie of a book and then they change the cover of the book with like a promotional image of (laughs) the movie that's that's what this reminds me of but this i am more okay with because i think it just makes more sense for the grinch to be green i don't know why like imagining him as white feels so weird green is such like a greedy color and the grinch is greedy so it Mm -hmm. it makes sense it's also interesting to me that So there had been several Dr. Seuss adaptations 
before the How the Grinch Stole Christmas, but this was the first one that was long enough to warrant like added material. So I think up until this point, everything had pretty much been like directly based on the book. But for the Grinch, they had to create additional story elements to fill that runtime of only 30 minutes, which really isn't that long. But I wonder if they've ever like republished the book with that added material from the special though since they changed the color do you know that okay so i think they so they publish like i said the original book with a white grinch the original book with a green grinch and then they have like books that are basically printed versions of the movie that are different okay. but i think that they are always titled something slightly different like it's not you know the same cover or anything like that they're kind of like almost like from what I I just like went on Amazon and like looked through all of the printed copies of the Grinch that you could order and they just look more like collector's editions or like special editions of the book rather than a book masquerading as how the Grinch stole Christmas that is actually just the movie version so so of course you know how the Grinch stole Christmas the special was inspired by the book the special I would say definitely influenced the movies that have come out. Um, there was a 2001 live-action Jim Carrey film, The Grinch, and there was a CGI animated version of The Grinch released in 2018, and then there was actually a live televised musical version that aired on NBC in 2020. I watched that, and it was not great. <laughs> <laughs> so, although How the Grinch Stole Christmas was already fairly popular as a book. I think that the special is what catapulted it to its current place in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And the term Grinch, and I questioned this because it seems so crazy, but the term Grinch was created based on this book. Like it is not a word that existed before How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So <laughs> now I feel like Grinch is thrown around pretty commonly in the English language. And mm -hmm. it has come to mean anyone who has a bad attitude about the holidays. Kind of like Scrooge, mm -hmm. but maybe more commonly used than Scrooge. Yeah, I mean... I feel like if you say that person's just a Grinch, everyone knows what you're trying to say about them. And similarly mm -hmm. with Scrooge, but A Christmas Carol is, I don't even remember when it would have been published, but it's been around a lot longer than The Grinch has been. So maybe Grinch just has more, has the same weight for us that Scrooge would have had a hundred years ago. I, I don't know if the term would have the same weight for us or the same, you know, prevalence if the special had not been made, you know, if it was just the book over all of those years, you know, perpetuating this story, would we be talking about the term Grinch being a part of American vocabulary? I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it as well. One thing to note, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, I would say has become a bona fide Christmas classic. There are a couple of songs in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and I would say that's the one that definitely is the most recognizable from the special. And it actually finally charted on the Billboard Hot 100 in 2019 for the first time. That is so weird. Yeah. Uh, and then in 2020, it rose to a new peak of number 32. Wow. The week of Christmas. But it's special, or it's soundtrack rather, did have some recognition at the time. It actually won a Grammy for Best Album for Children in 1968. So maybe it's not as identified with music in the way that A Charlie Brown Christmas is, or the songs Rudolph the Redness Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, that inspired those specials, but still some relevant music that has stood the test of time. <laughs> 
So as Cody just alluded to, our next Christmas special, Frosty the Snowman, was also based on a holiday song. That song was Frosty the Snowman, obviously, which was first recorded by Gene Autry, remember him, from Rudolph, in 1950. But this version is not the most popular version of the song. That would probably be the Jimmy Durante version, which was released the same year. And he actually went on to play the narrator in Frosty the Snowman, which is kind of an interesting coincidence or probably not a coincidence. Maybe they just wanted him because he did the song. (laughs) The special first aired in 1969, December 7th on CBS. And as far as we can tell, it has aired on CBS every single year since 1969, which would make it the longest running holiday special that aired on the same network. Mm -hmm. Like Rudolph. And the other ones that we've talked about have aired longer, but have bounced around the different networks Mm -hmm. and stuff so much. So I feel like Frosty has a lot of similarities to Rudolph. Both were based on songs. Both have been airing for quite some time. And it was also produced by the same production company, Rankin Bass Production. But it wasn't stop motion like Rudolph. It is hand-drawn animation. Frosty did spawn a couple of sequels. There was 1976 Frosty's Winter Wonderland, which takes place later in winter and makes no mention of Christmas. And also, there was a team-up with Rudolph in 1979, as we mentioned earlier. They combined forces to create the special Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July, which was released in 1979 as a stop-motion animated feature-length TV film. It was set during the 4th of July, and it is the only one of the sequels to Frosty that actually mentions Christmas. It has Santa Claus as like a central character and everything. Like it's very Christmassy, just taking place in July, I guess. I have not seen it though, so. I have a question. I don't know if I can look it up if you don't know, but do you know if it was released around Christmas time or was it released in July? I don't know, but that is a good question. I feel like it would make more sense to release it in July, but I also feel like if you put it on TV in July, people would be like, why is this Christmas special on? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Oh, so weird. It was released in November. So November 25th, 1979. Huh. Interesting. I... I don't know. I just, like, I was thinking the same thing. If it had come out in July, that seems like a really bad business idea. Like, Mm -hmm. I just don't know how you would make money. Yeah. But it also doesn't really make sense to be released around Christmas time because it's Christmas in July. But anyway, who knows? Mm-hmm. So my favorite Frosty sequel was released in 1992. So Rankin and Bass was not involved in the sequel. It was produced by Broadway Video, which was a production company founded by SNL creator Lorne Michaels, which I did not know. And yeah. it's kind of a cool connection. It looks a lot different than the original Frosty. The animation style is different. The characters and character design are pretty different. And it also, I would say, is not canon. It, the, the kind of lore behind Frosty is also different here. It has kind of a an environmentalist theme. It's I believe there's like these spray cans that can just eliminate snow. And mm-hmm. so like there's just no snow anymore. And Frosty is trying to stop a corporate executive who um, I guess is just trying to get rid of all the snow. I don't know why he's trying to do that, but... I feel like he's trying to sell this product like because people want to like not have to shovel their snow and stuff right so like the corporate guys you know just 
trying to get rich, you know, in his capitalistic way. and Kill to, joy. Right, yes. Trying to yes. murder snowmen and women everywhere. <laughs> and snow people of any gender, I guess I should say. This is also interesting to me. The same man who directed A Charlie Brown Christmas also directed Frosty Returns. That's Bill Melendez. Mm -hmm. I had no idea about that either, but I (laughs) thought that was such an interesting tidbit because I would not have associated either of those specials with each other. Yeah, I don't know what it is about Frosty Returns that I like so much. I think I just like the sort of fighting the corporate man mm-hmm. like element of it and like the idea that someone's trying to take snow away because like snow is just such a magical thing when you're a kid especially mm-hmm. so it's always just i've always just liked it <laughs> yeah you know something that just occurred to me is that a lot of these christmas specials have this theme of the commercialism and the consumerism of the holiday season being something that we should be fighting back against and that, you know, we don't want any of that. But then a lot of these specials also were ordered by giant corporations (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they wanted to sponsor something on television. They wanted to sell their ads. And also, like, (laughs) all of these specials have gone on to spawn so much merchandise. (laughs) Yep. Like, if you want to buy any Christmas decorations, like, you go into a store, they're going to have Frosty decorations, Rudolph decorations, Grinch decorations. Like, yeah, maybe something's... The message is clearly being lost on (laughs) some of these people, I think. It's also interesting, too, that they've... So they've persisted for so long with these same messages. And I would say Christmas has only gotten more and more commercialized over the years. Mm -hmm. I've feel like maybe part of the reason that these specials have retained so much reverence is that like maybe they make people yearn for a simpler time around the holidays but the fact that these specials were also mentioning the gripes that people have Mm -hmm. about christmas nowadays indicates that it wasn't any different (laughs) back then you know that's a good point it's kind of like you want, like, you idealize the holidays in a certain way. Like, you want them to just be these times when you can enjoy your family. You can have, you know, religious festivities if that's what you believe. And you don't have to if you don't want to. But you can still just enjoy the togetherness and the generosity and the spirit of Christmas, whatever that is for you. But we get so bogged down in the other elements of the holidays that our society has created, has forced upon us, maybe. And we wish that there was a time at any point in human history when those trappings didn't exist. And I'm not entirely convinced that there ever was, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So just wishful thinking that will probably never, ever happen. But what are you going to do? Well, what I'm going to do is talk about a year without a Santa Claus. Well, okay. Do it then. <laughs> So this is yet another Rankin-Bass stop-motion production that was first broadcast a little later than the other ones. It was broadcast on ABC on December 10th, 1974, and is actually based on a book that was published in 1956 with the same name by Phyllis McGinley. And while this special doesn't necessarily have the same place in our culture as the other specials, I would say two of these characters from A Year Without a Santa Claus have gone on to kind of become for lack of a better word, gay cultural icons. <laughs> Heat Miser and Snow Miser. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I, <laughs> I just feel like it's so funny that the gay community has drawn this attachment <laughs> to them but like they're just super catty toward each other and they have this flair for elaborate song and dance numbers with backup dancers and heat miser says things like some like it hot but i like it really hot <laughs> and like <laughs> it's, um i don't know they if any of these holiday special characters are obvious homosexuals it is those two but you know what Hermie from Rudolph. I was just gonna say that's so the one article that I read that had like a compilation of like gay icon Christmas characters (laughs) these two were on it but Hermie was also on the list Hmm. and also like the other misfit toys from the Isle of Misfit Toys Mm. yeah I mean I could see it for Hermie but we'll never really know yeah oh I love that though I do too. I <laughs> feel like I never, uh, like, A Year Without Santa Claus isn't usually, well, I don't know when the last time it would have been on broadcast TV, but it's usually on, like, Freeform or, like, AMC mm-hmm. or one of the, like, other cable channels that I never really paid much attention to. So I don't know if I've actually sat and watched the whole thing the whole way through. I've just, like, caught bits and pieces. So I've probably seen the whole thing over the years, but never, like, in one sitting. So I should probably yeah. go back and revisit it sometime. I just, I don't remember the animation style being nearly as, like, nice or polished to look at as right. the other ones. <laughs> it looks, like, much more low budget. Which is kind of strange because this was made, like, 10 years after Rankin Bass started, like, becoming known for, like, setting this industry precedent with that style of the stop motion. But maybe they were (laughs) not doing so hot by 74 and didn't have the budget to dedicate to it? I don't know. I think that they went out of, like, business. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but I think the production company shut down in 87. So this would have maybe been on the downswing mm-hmm. a little. Yeah. I feel like that's enough about your house, Santa Claus. <laughs> we did want to mention just one more. It, it's not the same as the other Christmas specials, but as we were preparing to do this episode, I was talking to my boyfriend, Zach, about the specials we were going to cover, and he said that we absolutely needed to mention a Christmas story, because while it was not produced originally as a Christmas special for TV, it has become so much associated with TV because of its 24-hour consecutive airings that it has done since 1997. Yeah, I didn't realize that they had been doing it for that long. Me neither. And I honestly had not, like, considered talking about it at first because it's not a traditional TV special for Christmas. Like, I, I was kind of in that mindset of, we are only gonna do the made-for-TV specials, but it absolutely has had a huge impact on the holidays and on holiday programming on television. So it started on TBS with the 24-hour airing in 1997, as you said, and then it also began airing on TNT in 2014. So they have two networks running (laughs) this movie 24 hours a day on Christmas Day. I think they start at 8 p.m. on TBS and then on TNT at 9 p.m. That is so weird. So that it's staggered so you're not like you can go Uh back and forth between them and not be watching the same season yeah but i find it interesting too that the film premiered in 1983 and was kind of like a box office dud that grossed about 19 million dollars against a three million dollar budget but christmas movies weren't really popular at the time like this was several years before national lampoon's christmas vacation and home alone so it's 
not really surprising, I guess, that it didn't do that well. But Roger Ebert did give it four out of four stars. And obviously, it struck a chord with people who saw it because over the next several years after it theatrical release. It started airing on television around the holidays and also was released on home video, which was booming in popularity around that time. So the film got a pretty dedicated legion of fans and actually in recent years has been declared by some media outlets to be the best holiday film ever made. I don't know if I agree with that, personally. I was just gonna ask you, like, I actually have no idea what you think of this movie. And do you like it? I can't say that I like it, but I don't hate it. Like, it, I, I just feel kind of ambivalent toward it. I, I'm just like, I don't know. I could take it or leave it, I guess. If I see it at some point over the holidays, then fine. But I would never, I'm not going to like put it on my calendar to watch at any point like right. I do for Charlie Brown Christmas, you know? What are your thoughts on it? I've just never really liked it all that much. Like, I used to really strongly dislike it like mm. I just don't like the way that it looks very much the color of it is like off-putting to me I agree with that do you really yeah uh, like that's the thing for me too visually it's just like something that I don't want to watch yeah it's like very <laughs> it feels like the best way I can describe it is like if you've ever been in like your old like great aunt's house the way, like, the color in that house is going to be, and, like, it's just, that's, like, visually, that's what the movie makes me think of, is that I'm just, like, stuck in this place where everything is, like, slightly dusty and not, like, fully saturated in the way that I want it to be. I don't know, but I, I never really liked the way it looked. And then, like, in more recent years, because, like, I guess Zach's family watches it like every year on Christmas they always have it on the TV and so like I've seen it more in recent years and it definitely doesn't put me off as much as it used to but I just don't like I just it doesn't catch me in the way that some of these other specials do but I can see like my parents had never seen it and so Zach put it on the TV for them and my dad just like really thought it was so funny having never seen it before and having grown up I don't even know when the movie is set, but like my dad grew up in the 50s and 60s. So like I think some of the imagery and some of the stuff that the movie talks about like related more to his generation than mine, maybe. I feel like that is a kind of good segue into some of the overall questions that we had come up with about these Christmas specials. One of the things that you may have noticed in our discussion here is that all of the specials we talked about were from the 60s. Year Without a Santa Claus was 74. But since then, there really have not been any holiday specials that have had the kind of staying power that those ones from the 60s did. And I am curious what your thoughts here are on why none of even the sequels of any of those specials or any of the new ones that have come in the many years since, why have they not gained that same kind of prominence and status as those holiday institutions as the ones that we've talked about? Is it that some of the newer ones just haven't had time to like really develop their reputation as a classic or have none of them truly been of good enough quality to match those originals? Or are those originals not even actually that good and we just have this nostalgia for them that makes us think that they are something that we need to watch every year? I don't know. I thought about this a lot and I think like the answer is somewhere in between like all of the things that you've put forth there. I think some of it to me, like, I don't know enough to know that what I'm saying is right, but I think 
we just don't see as many specials produced specifically for TV, at least not Christmas specials. Like, they're definitely still made. Like, I think about, like, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. That's, like, one that I know was made recently. But we've seen a bigger rise in, like, feature-length films about Christmas that then just get aired on TV, like The Santa Claus or Jingle All the Way, Home Alone. Even Netflix put out like a beautifully animated Christmas special, I think last year called Claus with a K, K-L-A-U-S. I wasn't aware of that. It's, I believe, traditionally hand-drawn animation and is like truly one of the most beautiful hand-drawn animations I've seen come out in like forever it's you should look it up if you've never seen it there's even if you just watch the trailer it's really well made so i think these longer movies end up just getting aired on tv and like what kind of a network or cable channel is going to invest in making a special when there's already ready-made content both the specials that we talked about today but also like the movies that have come out that already have a following like why are you going to invest any time or money into making something new when you know 7.17 people are going to come back every year to watch rudolph you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so it's kind of sad like sad to me that there hasn't been something new but it isn't surprising and I think we have enough like feature length films like I love the Santa Claus I love Home Alone like I like these movies a lot and they have like a similar spot in my heart because they are just aired like it doesn't ABC family they're not even called that anymore freeform Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if they still do, but like the 25 days of Christmas movies or something yeah. like that. So like, you know, you're going to see these things. I feel like I had something else that I wanted to say that totally just evaporated from my mind. It melted like frosty <laughs> when someone sprayed him it with the did. With whatever it was called. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Maybe it'll come back to me. You actually took some words out of my mouth with what you were <laughs> saying about why would networks pay to produce more stuff when they already have stuff that they know the audience wants. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely possible that we could have, you know, had more specials created over the years that people liked just as much as that stuff that we got in the 60s. But like, if the network knows that they're going to turn out an audience for the specials that already exist, and they can just pay more money for the rights that they know will get them a return on their investment over a period of years, rather than investing a bunch of money into a special that might never get off the ground, then it totally makes sense why they wouldn't be so eager to create something new. But I will say, I think I'm sort of hopeful for the future about some of the Christmas programming that could be coming out, because there are so many more channels, you know, whether streaming networks or traditional broadcast or cable networks, there are so many more places that are trying to generate content. And as all of these old properties are, you know, still exclusively licensed to one network, for the most part, there are going to be other channels that might be looking for that Christmas content and not able to find, you know, anything (laughs) that they know will turn out an audience. So they might be more willing to create their own. And out of that, we might get some things that in 30, 40, 50 years have stood the test of time and have become holiday institutions in their own right. Now, at the same time, in today's splintered TV viewing landscape, it's a lot less likely that a 
an audience is really going to cling to something mm-hmm. new, I think Netflix probably has the best chance of creating something like that. I, I would say I'm not hopeful that there would be any kind of new holiday programming that starts to come about, but I do feel like these specials will continue to stand the test of time and there will always be an audience for them as long as, like, as far into the future as I can see. But I don't know that any new specials that come about are going to have that same kind of cultural resonance that these ones have had. Yeah, I think it's, I know I said this earlier, but it's clear from the Apple TV plus Charlie Brown Christmas saga that (laughs) happened that, like, people just want them to be around. And I agree with you. I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon, probably not in our lifetime. And maybe nothing else will ever come about that kind of matches them. Because while there are more channels for things to be produced, there's also maybe less of a way for them to stick with us in a similar way. But yeah, I guess that is a good enough spot to end on. I think so. I liked this. Uh, Overall, I feel like we touched on a lot of interesting, fun stuff about these specials that hopefully people were not aware of and you learned something from listening to this. And I, I just, I don't know, there's something special about these Christmas specials. And they're just one of my favorite pieces of television programming for some reason. I don't know why I have such an attachment to them. I think it's just that warm, fuzzy holiday feeling that they inspire in all of us. And I hope that we gave you that from our podcast today. I know. Whether... Whether you're baking Christmas cookies listening to us or driving home for the holidays, I hope that this made your Christmas season a little brighter. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a very happy holiday, whichever holiday you celebrate. I am Elena Hillard. And I am Cody Hoffman. Happy holidays to all and to all a good night. How about that? Yes, and cue the jingle bells. (laughs) I don't have actual bells with me, or I would actually jingle them, but... Bye! Bye! Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!